I'm Pastor Dana Castaldo, and I ask and invite you to open your Bibles up to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. For those who have not been with us in previous studies and this portion of scripture, we are, as a congregation, going through what are called the Psalms of Ascents. That is a collection of 15 psalms, starting at Psalm 120, going through Psalm 135. We've already covered two. This morning we'll be on our third, Psalm 122. Just a recap to remind us where we've been. Psalm 120 really dealt with Longing to be in the presence of the house of the Lord. The psalmist was in trouble and cried to the Lord because he was far away, far away from the presence of his house and his temple, far away from Mount Zion. And we looked at the psalmist in 120 uh, describing the verbal attacks that he was enduring as being a man after God's own heart. And we talked about David in the context and his persecution under Doag, if you recall, one of the chief shepherds of King Saul. And then we looked at how that applied to Christ in his life and how he was a man of sorrows and how was also afflicted by cruel words as being the epitome of a man after God's own heart. And then we turn to Psalm 121, and we actually looked at what it was like possibly to be a pilgrim going to Israel, going to the temple of the Lord, making that voyage from whatever land you were coming from, and how the opening line, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains, from where shall come my help? And we talked about what it very well could have been like to be frightened in the wilderness as you're approaching Jerusalem on your journey, afraid from wild beasts and robbers which often lurked in the mountains. And how again these were songs that were sung by Israelites going to the house of the Lord. And then we again considered how it applied to Christ. And we talked about his passion. How as he was carrying the wood up the hill to Calvary. How this very well could have been the psalm that was on his lips. As he was ascending the mountain of the Lord to pay for the sins of his people. And now we come to Psalm 122. And I look forward to unpacking it with you and with God's mercy showing us Christ once more. So let us read Psalm 122. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. This is the word of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
For there thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let us seek the Lord's favor now in prayer as we anticipate what he will feed us with. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would help us now, for we need your help. Open up your word to us, Lord. Show us marvelous and wonderful things in your law. May they be impressed upon our hearts, even those hearts that are made new by your spirit, that we may see Christ and feed on him this morning. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, the general objective for today's sermon is to invigorate, to stimulate, to warm, to encourage, to enliven, to inflame our worship. Not just our worship, but our worshiping hope. Because as believers here in Christ, we have something that we are hoping in as the body of Christ. But it's a twofold purpose, not only to invigorate our worshiping hope as the body of Christ, but also, once again, to sound an alarm to those who have yet to bow their knee and truly gather with Christ and his people. Today's sermon will be divided into three parts. Part one, a holy anticipation. That'll be verse one, a holy anticipation. Part two, a holy convocation. That's verses 3 and 4. And lastly, a holy supplication. That'll cover verses 5 and 8. So a holy anticipation, a holy convocation, and a holy supplication. This past week, uh, which will probably come as no surprise to those who have heard Pastor Perkins in the announcements and in, in the pastoral prayer, uh, this past week, I've had baptism on my mind a lot. And I've been very encouraged and thankful for what the Lord is doing in our congregation. An ordinance of the New Testament to be baptized and to partake of the Lord's Supper. An ordinance that we have given to us by Christ. And as we consider these Psalms of Ascent, what we're remembering is that they had ordinances in the Old Covenant as well. And one of those ordinances that they had was for those who were of appropriate age to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple. In fact, that language is going to show up in this psalm, that this is an ordinance of the Lord going up to Jerusalem. But as Pastor Perkins and I uh, ask and pray for wisdom of the Lord concerning the ordinance that we were given in the New Covenant, baptism in particular this week, we have found ourselves being blessed with a myriad of children in our congregation wrestling with things like appropriate age. What does it mean to have a credible profession of faith? And although there is no age when you are valid to be saved, the Lord can save any at any time he so chooses, we know 
we know um, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even while in his mother's womb. Now, granted, that is not ordinary. But the point is this. The Lord is sovereign, and he calls who he calls when he wills. But as a pastor in the New Covenant, it is incumbent upon us to evaluate and investigate professions of faith to determine whether they are credible. And so not to give a sermon about baptism, but just as an introduction, a credible profession of faith comes from someone who is mature in their thinking, no longer thinking like a child, but thinking like an adult. And there is no age, again, where this happens. But I do think we have echoes in the scriptures of a roundabout season where this tends to happen in the life of a young man or a young woman. If you were to ask a Jew today, not according to scripture, but according to tr their tradition, when does a child, a, a young man even, go from being a child to an adult? At what age are these ordinances impressed upon them and they now become obligated to it? And they would say, well, it has to do with a bar mitzvah. Well, when is the child's bar mitzvah? It's at the age of 12. Now, this is not scriptural, but I think there's an echo of it. Because when do we see our Lord in the scriptures, in the gospels, going to Israel, to the temple, as a young boy? It's the age of 12. And when it says in the, in the Gospel of Luke, and he went up with his parents to Jerusalem for the feasts, it very well could have been that that was the age, that was the time when our Lord Jesus was obligated to go for the first time to the temple as a citizen of national Israel. And when I think of this psalm, opening line, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Could this not have been in our Lord's mind? And the gladness that he felt as a young boy, yes, now I travel with my parents and with the commonwealth of Israel to go to the house of the Lord to partake of these feasts. Very well could be. This is what I want to have in the back of your mind as we unpack this psalm. Because in the previous two psalms, we talked about the psalms being the very word of Christ. How often these words were on his lips as he lied, as he was nailed to the cross and it said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting the psalms. And as David wrote those words, it was Christ who was speaking through David. And so as we read Psalm 122... I want us to continually think about and meditate in our minds how these are the actual words of Christ. Now, we don't have for us anywhere in Scripture that verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, that that was a reflection or words that actually were on our Lord's lips when he was going to the temple with his parents. But these are the, these, this is the kind of imagination that I want you to engage with. One, one theologian said, and I thought it was very appropriate and, and applicable, that our imagination is the bridge between our minds and our hearts. 
When we want to take what the scripture says and bury it in our hearts, it's often our imaginations which are the bridge between the knowledge that we have and the love that we have in our hearts. For as we all know, love, uh, knowledge does not equal saving faith, but love for Christ is an evidence of saving faith. So let us read Psalm 122, and let's begin to unpack it in light of all that I've said. As we said before, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is part one, a holy anticipation. So what is anticipation? Well, as I've often used Webster's 1828 Dictionary of the English Language, one of the definitions that Noah Webster gives for anticipation is this. The act of taking up, placing, or considering something before the proper time. That's what anticipation is in the English language, that we're taking up something in our minds, we're placing or we're considering something before the proper time, before it happens. I think this is right in the verse here. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's an anticipation in those words. We're not there yet. A voice has said, let us go. Now Calvin says this, God had often told Moses that his sanctuary would one day have a certain and fixed place or abode. Yet from the time of Moses, for the space of more than a thousand years, the Ark of the Covenant had been carried about from place to place as if it had been in a state of pilgrimage. When the psalmist is saying, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, house, another way of saying temple or sanctuary, the point is this, is that they were going to a destination that existed, that was there. But think about this. This is the first psalm of ascent that is actually specifically ascribed to David. And the temple was not yet standing. That's interesting. It's interesting that David is ascribed of writing, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So Calvin goes on and says, at length it was revealed to David that Mount Zion was the spot where God would have his ark to be settled and his temple built. And now as David himself received this revelation with exceeding great joy, so he affirms that he was glad to find the whole people with one consent agreeing thereunto. What is Calvin saying? Calvin is saying that because David wrote this psalm, he was given some kind of prophetic knowledge that the temple would be built on Mount Zion. And so in, an, in a doxological overflow of his imagination, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Another trusted theologian, John Gill says, It seems to be designed for the use of the Israelites and to be sung by them when they went up to the feasts three times a year. Now here again, we're confronted with these interpretive decisions because as I said in Psalm 121, many commentators will wrestle with what these psalms of a sense were used for. 
Calvin is saying here that this was David speaking in a prophetic sense. Gil is saying, well, these were actually used by Israelites making their pilgrimage to Israel. My, my find interesting that the ancient Syriac version has the inscription, a psalm of David, one of the psalms of ascents when Cyrus commanded the captivity to go up spiritually, a promise of good things. So here we have the Syriac version saying, well, actually the context is the Israelites leaving their Babylonian captivity and going to Israel to not only build the temple, but to these feasts that would one day accompany the temple. And then we brought it all the way up the ladder when we said, but there's a spiritual application that it could be ascending physically to the temple in Israel. It could be the Jews who did that during the dysphoria. It could be the Jews doing that when they were leaving Babylon. Or it could be all spiritual Israel doing that when they come to the Lord in faith. I want to look at the Old Testament because I think it will help us here in grappling with this idea of physical realities that point to a greater spiritual reality. If you're able, please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Please turn there. Because this can be confusing. Are we talking spiritual or are we talking physical? Are these psalms of ascents for physical Israelites that go to a physical temple? Or are these psalms of ascents for spiritual Israelites that go to a spiritual temple? 2 Samuel chapter 7 deals with the prophet Nathan who is given a word from the Lord to give to King David. Verse 1 from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, that is David, and the Lord, Yahweh, gave him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. This is what Calvin was getting at. The ark of the covenant, which was the very place where the Israelites would worship and meet God, the very throne of his presence, his footstool, was in a constant state of movement. It was in a constant state of pilgrimage. And David is now saying, this isn't right. I, as king of Israel, an earthly king, an anointed king, live in a house, and the Lord lives in a tent? This is not right. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for Yahweh is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone, with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. This is to the prophet Nathaniel. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Listen to this. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, singular, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Listen to verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for a time. No, forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all the vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So here's the question. Did David ever build a house for Yahweh? Did David ever do what he intended to do before he got this word from the Lord? Answer, no. Who did? His son, Solomon. And so some commentators, in fact, some Israelites may have thought, this is it. This is the, this is the son of David who was promised to build a house for the Lord. Except one problem. Where's that temple today? Where was that temple during the Babylonian captivity? It was raised to the ground. As we went through our study in Daniel, that temple ceased to exist. Yet the temple that the Lord promised to build from one of David's sons would be a temple that would last forever. So it couldn't have been Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was a picture, a type a representation, a temporary mist that was given to the Israelites to kindle their imaginations, to connect their minds to their hearts, that the Lord was among them and had made promises to them. And yet there was something greater that was coming. There was a greater son of David who was promised to come to build a temple. Do you see how we're going from physical to spiritual? This is the application. As we consider these words, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to relegate this, this plea of thankfulness and gladness. I don't want you to relegate it to the lips of an ancient Israelite that has no application to you today. In fact, I would reckon that not only every believer, 
But every image bearer of God has placed upon their heart a desire, a desire to worship. It's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We are all worshiping creatures because we're made in God's image. Even the unbeliever, we know, is a worshiping creature. In fact, this day, the first day of the week, when the church gathers to worship in the solemn assembly of the Lord, you have unbelievers who are doing special things on this day because on their heart is the law of God that says you ought to be worshiping the Lord. For us who believe, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So as believers, not only do we worship because it's in our nature to do so, but we desire to worship the one true and living God. Why? Because we love Jesus, who is the one true and living God. And we seek to keep his commandments. Why? Because we love him. And he says, if you love me, if you truly love me, you will keep my commandments. You will desire to keep them. Jesus says this often in John's gospel. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. John even says it in his, in his epistles. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It would be burdensome if we didn't want to keep them. But because we want to keep the commandments of the Lord, because we love him, they're not burdensome. We may find a burden in not being able to keep them. Amen? Amen. But it's not a burden to want to keep them. It's a joy to want to keep them. Why? Because we love him. And so Calvin again says, So stubborn and rebellious is human nature that the great majority of mankind invariably murmur against God whenever he speaks. We have therefore no small ground for rejoicing when all harmoniously rank themselves with us on the side of God. How great it is to come to the congregation, to those who have willingly come because we want to be here and worship the Lord. How glad I was when I said, let us go to the Lord in his house this day. Because others will be there that would say the same thing. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. But interestingly enough, Noah Webster gives us a little bit more in his definition of the word anticipation, which I think points to an even greater reality than what we're doing here this morning. When he says anticipation is identified as placing something before your minds that has yet to happen, he says this in a later definition. Anticipation is a foretaste a previous view or impression of what is to happen afterwards. And then he says this. This is why you need to have the Noah's, Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary on your, on your shelf. He says this. An impression of what is to happen afterwards as the anticipation of the joys of heaven. I want my children to know that definition of anticipation. Because the greatest anticipation that all of us have as image bearers, and furthermore, as worshipers of the one true and living God, is not just coming here week after week, although we anticipate that and we long for it. Amen? It's being in heaven 
and ultimately on a new earth. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then listen to the next line. We go from a holy anticipation to a holy convocation. Verse 2. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. What does Noah Webster say about the word convocation? He says it's the act of calling or assembling by summons. A convocation is when someone is summoning you to go somewhere, to come somewhere. That's what we had in verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It was a summoning. And then there was a holy anticipation. I'm going to go there. But now, in verse 2, we're not waiting to go there any longer. Where are we? We're there. Our feet are standing now within your gates. We have made the long journey. We're no longer in our pilgrimage. Now again, what's the literal sense? The literal sense is they've made it to the physical temple. They've, they're, they're obedient to this Old Testament ordinance to go three times a year for these feasts to the temple where there's a literal throne of the house of David where the king of Israel sits on his throne in judgment. They've made their physical pilgrimage to the physical Mount Zion. Do we stop there? Do you want to stay on that first rung of the ladder or do we keep ascending? Let's keep ascending. What's the spiritual sense? That was the letter of the word. What is the spirit of the word? It's a spiritual temple. And it's not of the physical David, but of the greater David, Christ and his body, Christ and the church. It's not the Old Testament ordinance. It's a New Testament ordinance. It's not the physical thrones that where the physical king of Israel would sit. It's a spiritual throne of the greater David's house. It's not a physical pilgrimage to the physical Mount Zion anymore. But it's a spiritual pilgrimage, brothers and sisters, to the spiritual Mount Zion. And where's that? Heaven itself. Look with me at this spiritual temple. John 2, starting in verse 19. Jesus answered them as he's being rallied against. Remember Psalm 120. He's being rallied against by these words of haters of God in Israel, even his own brethren. Jesus answers them and says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Where are their minds set? On the physical or on the spiritual? But he answered, he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's a commentary from John. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he ra was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. What scriptures did they believe? The Old Testament. Are you telling me the Old Testament talks about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Amen. 
Was Jesus holding the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes accountable to know that? Have you not read? Jesus would say over and over and over again. Jesus says, you look to the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they that testify about me. If you loved Moses, you would love me because Moses wrote about me. Quotes from our Lord. And so we have Jesus being the true temple. That which the physical temple pointed to was a shadow pointing to a greater reality. Jesus Christ himself is the temple. But he's not just the head, he has a body. Who's the body of Christ? It's us, the church. And so it comes as no surprise that the Apostle Paul will say, do you not know that you all, in the plural, he was a southerner, do you not know that y'all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So we've broadened out our spiritual understanding of the temple. It's not just Christ. It's Christ and his body, the head and the body. The Christ and the church. What about the ordinance? We see the ordinance mentioned about in this psalm. It's an ordinance of Israel. Verse 4, for the tribes of the Lord to go up, even the tribes of the Lord. So much could be unpacked here. But there's an ordinance for the new covenant community. Hebrews chapter 4. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, that is Christ, has himself also rested from his works during the incarnation as God did from his at creation. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Yes, there's a New Testament ordinance to come here on the first day of the week as the Jews did during their Sabbath, the church does during ours. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews chapter 4. There is a New Testament ordinance. It just isn't happenstance that they chose to meet on the first day of the week. They chose to meet on the first day of the week because that was the resurrection of our Lord and Savior because that ushered in a new creation. There was a Sabbath rest for the people of God in the old creation and there was a Sabbath rest for the people of God in a new creation. When was a Sabbath rest for the people of God in the old creation? On the seventh day of the week. Why? Because God rested on the seventh day of the week. Did he not? How many days, children, did it take God to make heaven and earth and all that is in it? Six days. And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. When did Jesus rest from his work? The first day, when he rose from the dead. So it is entirely appropriate that there's a new Sabbath day for a new creation, just as there was an old Sabbath day for the old creation. Don't let anybody tell you that it's willy-nilly to change the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day, that there isn't a biblical basis for it. You want a biblical basis? Hebrews chapter 4. 
verses 9 through 11. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his. You see the new creation, old creation language? Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. We enter that rest as believers when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter that rest when we come week after week on the first day to commemorate his rest. But ultimately, it's pointing to an even greater rest, which is that heavenly rest, that perfected rest that we still wait for as pilgrims. The psalm talks about thrones. There were thrones set for judgment there, the thrones of the house of David. Are we just talking about physical thrones? Listen to the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So brothers and sisters, as we see the physical things in this psalm, don't stop there. Because they're all shadows that point to a greater reality of Christ and the church and the new covenant. We are the, the blossoming flower of all of these pictures in the old. We said at the end that they were going to a physical temple in a physical Jerusalem. A physical pilgrimage with physical ordinances, with physical thrones. And we're saying it's all spiritual in the new covenant. And yet finds its basis in the old. Show me where it says that we've come to a physical mountain. Show me where it says that we've come to heaven now in our order of worship. Show me now where it says that these things in the old that were physical were pointing to something greater and spiritual. Open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 12 if you're able. This is the apostolic thinking, brothers and sisters. When you read your Bibles, I want you to be thinking this way. Think as an apostle. Why? Because the apostles were taught by Jesus how to think. And when I say think like an apostle, what I'm really saying is think like Jesus. Who is the greatest scripture interpreter that has ever lived? Humanly speaking, Jesus. Would anybody argue with that? This is why in the Gospels it's a constant battle over how do you interpret the Old Testament. That was the chief battle between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How do you interpret the Old Testament? And Jesus, time and time again, was showing the religious leaders that they were interpreting their Bibles incorrectly. Sadly, that same interpretation is alive and well today. And I don't want you to fall victim of it. I want you to have an apostolic interpretation because that apostolic interpretation is from our Lord. And it is the appropriate and true interpretation. Hebrews chapter 12, look with me as we consider a physical to spiritual reality to Mount Zion. The apostle Paul says in his sermon, by the way, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched physical to spiritual, a mountain that can't be touched, okay? And to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to a blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged to no further hear the word spoken. Mount Sinai, 
Exodus. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, but you, brothers and sisters, who are sitting here today listening in faith, but you have come, not will come in the future, not came in the past, right now, during this sermon, brothers and sisters, if you're listening in faith, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Right now, I just had my eyes on the physical. I just saw 30-some people in this room and thought that's all that it is. Now there's a myriad of angels that we're worshiping with right now, brothers and sisters. There are those who have passed in faith, those whom we know, those who we do not know, who are worshiping with us right now, brothers and sisters. And not just them, but to God, the judge of all, and Jesus, the mediator, all here, right now, engaged in worship with us. This idea of a spiritual Mount Zion is not foreign, again, to the Apostle Paul. We shouldn't be surprised we see it in Hebrews, in that sermon, because we see it in Galatians, where he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Or in 2 Corinthians, he writes again, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, which is eternal in the heavens. So Paul is appropriating this temple language, even this physical Mount Zion language in the Psalms, to something greater, to heaven. A holy convocation. So, considered spiritually, what is the application when the psalmist says this? Our feet are standing there within your gates, O Jerusalem. Well, three things I want you to consider. What does that mean for you presently? What does that mean for you presently? We've already discussed how in the congregation, our feet are standing in Jerusalem spiritually. We are worshiping with God, with the angels, with the church triumphant in heaven right now. That's what it means for us presently. Are you worshiping with them? Or are you sitting here not worshiping with them? Refusing to worship and to love. What does that mean for you interme intermediately? Consider what you will be there. Consider what it will be when you draw your last breath. And you now are now you are part of the church triumphant who are worshiping with the church militant on earth. We're all sitting in our chairs, brothers and sisters. But Lord willing, all of us who believe are promised to be worshiping there one day. 
And we will be worshiping with those who are still on earth. They won't be able to see us. And we might not be able to see them there. But the point is this. We will be worshiping together. When Christ says, oh, that my people would be one. Oh, brothers and sisters, believers are one. And don't think there's a separation between those who have earned their reward with us here who are still on our pilgrimage. So we've considered what we, will be, what we are here now, worshiping at spiritual Mount Zion, what we will be when we're there, worshiping in spiritual Mount Zion, but now consider what you will, what you will be there, not in heaven, but on earth, on the new earth. One day, the physical remade earth will be consummated new Jerusalem. The temple will become one with earth. There will be no temple there because the whole earth is the temple. In fact, the true temple is Christ and his people. And it will come about in the last days, the prophet Micah says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for might distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. As you read those last words, you say, you see, that's that final eternal rest. We still have war on this earth, do we not? We still have trials and pain. But Micah is telling us that this will happen in the last days. And when are the last days? They're now. When do the last days start? the resurrection that's why the apostle john will say we're in the last days because many antichrists have come that was 2,000 years ago we've been in the last days for over 2,000 years this is a recap of what we learned in first john but the point is this the prophet micah is saying in the last days that the mountain of the house of the lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and all nations will come and say come let us go to the mountain of the lord did that happen today did it happen this morning when you were coming here? Yes and amen. This is considering Mount Zion presently. But the end of this prophecy deals with that eternal Mount Zion in that new creation of the new earth. So don't relegate a prophecy to just being something in the distant future. It also has application to today. But what comes between the already and not yet? This is the climax of the sermon. I, I, I pray that you could just hold on a little bit longer. I don't want to run over. But this is the climax. What comes between the already and not yet? If the last days have been taking place for 2,000 years, and we're saying that there's an already, we're presently worshiping in the, in the spiritual Mount Zion, we're spiritually making that pilgrimage there when we come here every week. And yet one day Christ will return and all this will be consummated. What comes between the already and the not yet? Listen, 
the building of the temple, the building of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, if we know him, and when I say if we know him, I mean if you know him and you love him, not an intellectual knowledge, but if you know the Lord and you know the work that he is doing, we will pray for that work. And as believers here, I know you have. I know you have prayed for that work. Listen to Wisdom Incarnate, the master builder from Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus Christ, the head, the cornerstone of his temple, the church. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. Proverbs 9 is looking forward to Christ building his church. And this is why he can say through the Apostle Peter about you, brothers and sisters, that you are living stones and you're being built up into a spiritual house. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. What Christ promised to do in Proverbs 9, he is doing right now in church, in the church, and by the church. You are living stones if you sit here believing of this message. You're living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. So then it comes as no surprise then, if this work is being done, and we love him who is doing the work, that we will pray for that work. Because we know when that work is completed, what happens? Christ returns. Right? So is it any surprise, this is how the psalm ends. Read with me. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Noah Webster helps us again with the word supplication. I, call, I titled it a holy supplication. What is a supplication? It's an entreaty, a humble and earnest prayer in worship. All believers long for the completion of this work that concludes with Christ's second coming. All believers will pray for that work for the sake of their brothers and their friends. That's in the psalm. Concerning this, Jesus has given his church precious words of hope. Precious words we have from our Savior. And to the unbelieving world, for those of us who are sitting here not listening in faith, a clear and heart-stopping, sobering warning. Revelation chapter 22. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Our sister is washing her robe physically in the waters of baptism this evening, but her robes have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. This is for us. This is for us sitting here now. I am the root 
and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Oh, it's a free salvation. Yet it cost our Lord in his flesh much. We were purchased by the blood of the greater son of David. But woe to those who do not wash their robes in the blood of his cross. Back to Proverbs 8. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Do not tune this out. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Or as he said through the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if you, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape who turns away him who warns from heaven. In conclusion, Micah chapter 4, that blessed prophecy of that Old Testament prophet, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that, he may, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Oh, the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Are you glad this morning being in the house of the Lord? Will you have those words on your lips as you enter that house of the Lord in the intermediate state when you are called from this life? Will you have those words on your lips on the new earth? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But you have come to Mount Zion, brothers and sisters, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. Let's close with the psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. If you can hear that psalm, not as a merely physical Israelite, but as a spiritual one, God was faithful to my prayer. Let us pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for these psalms of ascent. They are packed and rich and powerful, full of wisdom and truth. Your son, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom and truth. Thank you for showing us his face in them this morning. Thank you for teaching us at spiritual Mount Zion. Thank you for the promises you've made to us each and every week as we come here. The promise that awaits us as we fellowship with the saints, triumphant in the intermediate state. And for that joy that will be on our lips when we are on a new earth. Where there will be no more sin, no more pain, and no more death. Lord, you are good. Thank you for feeding us. In Jesus' name. Amen.